through line between these two uh, is controlling women. And the eugenics movement wanted to control women and tell them which ones were fit to reproduce. The abortion laws want to control women and tell them that they have to bring a child to term. That That's the connection. It's the opposite of the connection that Thomas is making. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law and the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate. And we're rounding up toward the end of the Supreme Court term, which will end in the end of June. And the blockbuster decisions, to the extent we have any, will come in the next few weeks. But on this week's show, we wanted to continue a conversation we started on the last show with Professor Melissa Murray and Joan Biskupic. It was a conversation about a abortion rights at the Supreme Court. Last week in Box versus Planned Parenthood, a case out of Indiana that had to do with some new restrictions on abortion, the Supreme Court initially issued a pretty mild ruling on the merits. We'll get to that. But Clarence Thomas, in a 20-page concurring opinion, pretty much rocked the culture wars with a discussion comparing essentially abortion to eugenics. It was a pretty stunning new turn in the abortion debate, and it took something that was simmering, bubbling, to just a full rollicking boil in the last weeks of the term. In his concurrence, Justice Thomas cited a book written by Adam Cohen. The book is Imbeciles, the Supreme Court, Eugenics, and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck. It was an extraordinary tale of a very dark time in American history, uh, a time when this country allowed for the sterilization of people deemed to be inferior. Adam Cohen was actually pretty surprised to see his book uh, cited by Thomas, and he wrote about that in a piece in The Atlantic last week. Adam is a former member of the New York Times editorial board and a senior writer for Time magazine. Before Imbeciles, his most recent book was Nothing to Fear, FDR's Inner Circle and the Hundred Days that Created Modern America, and he is currently working on a book about the last few decades at the Supreme Court. So I've long wanted to have him on the show, but I really want to talk about eugenics and Clarence Thomas. Adam Cohen, welcome to Amicus. Oh, it's great to be with you, Dahlia. I'm, I'm very psyched to have you here. And I think I want to start uh, with Carrie Buck. I want to start with eugenics because the book was amazing. And uh, it's, I think, captures this paradox of, first of all, an incredibly dark time in American history, but the fact that legal legends, people whose names we breathe in reverence, uh, Justice Brandeis, Oliver Wendell Holmes, were all just fine, just fine with uh, Carrie Buck. So, so can you start there and we'll work our way to Clarence Thomas? Sure. Um, take, it took place in your old neck of the woods, Charlottesville, Virginia. This woman, Carrie Buck, young woman, she'd been taken in sort of as a foster child of a family working a little bit as a maid. She'd been taken from her poor single mother, and she was raped by uh, a nephew of the family. And then there's a question of what to do. She's a pregnant woman that there's really no place for. So back in those days, one option was to declare her feeble-minded, which is what they did, and to send her off to uh, uh, a colony for epileptics and feeble-minded in Virginia, which is what they did. Sounds very strange, but there actually were these colonies around the country and there were laws in Virginia, but also in a majority of states saying that if you were held to be feeble-minded or had other qualities that they said were unfit, you could actually be eugenically sterilized. So um, this is the plan. They send her off there. And she unfortunately gets there just as Virginia has passed one of these eugenic sterilization laws. And 
the, the lawyer for the colony doesn't really want to start sterilizing people until he's sure that it's legally acceptable. So he actually wants a test case, uh, even a test case that would go to the Supreme Court. Uh, they, they choose Carrie Buck, uh, newly arrived, to be the center of this case. So they decide to sterilize her. They give her a lawyer, and the lawyer is actually one of their friends, someone who had been on the board of the colony. And they try to get this uh, uh, case decided with, you know, ideally for them, a ruling saying that Virginia's new eugenic sterilization law is constitutional. And that becomes the case. It goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, it's hard to imagine now, but this was a case about whether this woman who had been just rather arbitrarily declared to be feeble-minded could be sterilized by the state because her genes would infect the gene pool. The Supreme Court eight to one says yes. And that decision, you know, you mentioned how some of our heroes were involved, written by the esteemed uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And this wasn't just a decision that said, well, we're not going to intrude on the right of states or anything like that. This was a rousing uh, clarion call saying, yeah, Virginia should sterilize her and we need to sterilize more of these people. You know, there's a a tide of of unfit people are are coming and going to overwhelm the country. We need more eugenics. So that's kind of the Carrie Buck story. And and I came to it because I was looking for a case in which the court really got something wrong. And uh, we know of a bunch of those. But this is one that isn't really hasn't gotten enough attention, I think. And I need you to explain because it's easy to look back and just say, what monsters? <laughs> I mean, they were wrong, like you say. But these were our heroes. Uh, Holmes, just generations of idiots, you know, just completely cavalierly accepting basic eugenic predicates. How is it that genteel, well-educated civil society was all in accord, apparently, that we could go around sterilizing people that we deemed lesser on, I think, admittedly flimsy evidence. Absolutely. And it, it it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating moment for all of us to reflect because um, it's just as you say, the idea of eugenics came from England. It was actually uh, first invented by a half-cousin of Charles Darwin, and it sort of came out of that scientific moment when people were discovering evolution and that man was evolving. And, well, maybe, uh, the, the eugenics said, uh, man could take a, a role in this and actually help to make the race evolve in a better way. So it actually came out of science and, oddly enough, out of progressive thinking because progressives, you know, we all believe in technology and science and using these things to make a better society. It just so happens back then they were thinking, well, we can make a better society by making better people. And remember, it was a pre-World War II, pre-Holocaust world where people weren't really thinking about the, you know, the darker sides of this kind of, uh, of genetic thinking. So um, when the idea crosses the Atlantic, comes to America, it is adopted by the most progressive areas and the most enlightened areas and the most well-educated areas. I, I also wrote an article for Harvard Magazine about how Harvard was the center of this. So the Harvard eugenicists were uh, leaders in the field and, uh, and the old families uh, of Boston were, you know, endowing chairs and sort of eugenic science. And then in Virginia, where Carrie Buck was, the University of Virginia was a big center of it. And the the man who ran 
the colony for epileptics and feeble-minded, it sounds so Dickensian now, and we picture some, you know, horrible guy who's just looking to lure women in and do terrible things to them. But he was actually a progressive-minded doctor who had come to the conclusion that there wasn't much to be done about epilepsy, which was a big focus of the colony, and a lot of the mental illnesses that he saw there. So he thought, you know, we have this ability to use science, to use genetics, to just breed these things out of humanity. So it sounds odd now, but the people who were doing this had progressive and sort of, you know, quote, humane ideas in mind. And the ones who opposed it, oddly enough, were, it's the flip of the abortion issue. It was the the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church believed that you don't judge people by these bodily attributes, you judge them by their souls. So what you got is when state legislatures around the country were debating eugenic sterilization laws, the Catholic Church was very often the the most visible group that was opposing it. Nuns and uh, priests and and lay Catholics would show up and, and oppose it. And, you know, in New Jersey, one of the groups that was very much arguing for it was the League of Women Voters. Those were the types of people you got, the progressives, the settlement house workers, the graduates of Vassar. And, you know, the nerve center of the eugenics movement was a place on Long Island called the Eugenics Record Office. And the photographs are amazing because the ranks of their staff included many women from places like Vassar and Radcliffe who, after graduating, their their first job would be this idealistic position of measuring people's head sizes to see if, you know, what their cranial capacity was. Um, These were the people who were pushing eugenics. Do you think, as you're talking about Harvard, and again, thinking on Justice Thomas's concurrence, is, is part of the allure of linking abortion to eugenics a way of tweaking Harvard and liberals, a way of saying, you know, boy, you guys thought you were super progressive and you were working toward the betterment of mankind and you were wrong there and you're wrong again. I mean, is there a layer here that you find of linking it up to something that is not just discredited? but discredited, and it was the liberals who were pushing it. Absolutely. The liberals, the pointy-headed people, and, you know, Justice Thomas is a serious Catholic. The Catholics were right, and yes, yeah, all you people who have been looking down on me and, you know, holding hearings about whether I sexually harassed, you know, Anita Hill and and who, like, you know, don't like it when I come to visit your law schools now, you guys were behind the eugenics movement, and hey, coincidentally, you're now behind abortion, so, you know, I'm going to tar you with this brush. I think that's a a brilliant insight. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about what we now know about Carrie Buck in the rearview mirror? Uh, Was she indeed uh, feeble-minded and put aside the eugenics conversation, but worthy of being treated as she was? No, it's such a sad story on every level. But, you know, one of them is, as I say, her her real problem was that she was born poor and she was being raised by a single mother. She had to go into this foster care situation where she was raped. No, there was nothing wrong with her mentally. And because these feeble-mindedness hearings, they didn't really know what feeble-mindedness was. And it was just done very quickly. And if they wanted you sent away because you were pregnant, they could do that. There weren't elaborate tests. So in the end of her life, you know, she actually lived into the early 1980s. You know, people knew her. She lived in a retirement home in Virginia. And people said, you know, she was always very excited when the daily newspaper came. She used to love to do the crossword puzzle. People who knew her said she was not feeble-minded. She just got caught up in something. And and again, I think that it's hard not to tether that conversation about poverty and uh, just not having resources to the conversation that Justice Thomas wants to have about a 
abortion. Again, I think there's a through line there because he's holding out his concern as concern for uh, poor black mothers who are being treated to a second round of eugenics. Again, I think the parallels, at least initially, are pretty striking, right? Right. And I think he's very clever at using these things in just the way you're saying. But in fact, as we know, it's always the poor folks who get disadvantaged by both things. In the eugenics era, it was absolutely poor women who were most likely to be sterilized. They used to call it a Mississippi appendectomy. Um, And here we're going to find a situation where, you know, wealthy women will by and large be able to have their abortion needs met, but it's going to be the poor women who really, uh, you know, get get screwed over by by the court if they if they continue down this path. One other piece from your book that I think will help at least set the table for for the conversation about what happened last week in um, Box versus Planned Parenthood, and and that is, how did we as a society come to realize we were wrong about eugenics? You you mentioned the Holocaust, but it seems like there was a pretty quick pivot uh, from saying everybody should do this and all the states should get on board to... Oh, my God, that was embarrassing. Um, and, I, and I wonder, I mean, there aren't a ton of things about which we change our minds that quickly. Tell us, tell us how we came to realize the error of our ways in this country. The big fervor behind it was really the 1910s and 1920s. Indiana starts this off with the uh, first eugenic sterilization law in 1907, really picks up steam in the 20s and slows down a little bit during the Great Depression just because the country was worrying about other things. But it is exactly as you say. And one of the real villains of my book is a guy named Harry Laughlin who ran the eugenics record office that I mentioned. And he was very close to the Nazi scientists. He corresponded with them. He uh, actually accepted an honorary degree from the University of Heidelberg in 1938. That was after they had purged all their Jewish faculty. Uh, He seemed like he was very sympathetic to the Nazis. So this was all moving along a pace. But yeah, once we enter the war and we're actually as a country committed to defeating Nazism, that's the first step. And then, of course, when we learn about the atrocities of the Holocaust. So as in that era is when Laughlin loses his funding and the Eugenics Record Office has to close up shop. He sort of moves back to rural Missouri where he came from in disgrace. And and that was because foundations were seeing what was going on in Germany and they didn't want to fund this anymore. And then, yes, after the war is very much discredited. Um, although it, it's worth noting that it wasn't entirely eliminated. And incredibly enough, the last eugenic sterilization under one of these state laws occurred in, I think it was Oregon in 1982. So it trails off, but into the 70s, they were still doing a number of eugenic sterilizations. And does the Supreme Court have a moment of reckoning around Buck v. Bell the way they did over, say, the Japanese internment cases? I mean, did they ever get to the point where they say, holy hell, that was wrong, or it just fades away into the doctrine? Yeah, it's never been overruled. And there was a fairly recent Court of Appeals ruling from the Midwest, I think in the 80s or 90s, sort of citing it approvingly in a sterilization context. And uh, and then I think just a few years ago, someone, one of the justices cited Buck v. Bell in, in a footnote or something because a friend of mine emailed it to me. So it it, uh, uh, it, it hasn't, you know, uh, it, it's mentioned maybe slightly more than, uh, than uh, Bush versus Gore. But no, they haven't had that moment where they've said, you know, we renounce this. And, uh, you know, we're all sort of waiting for that. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
We know you value the journalism that we do here at Slate. And now more than ever, our work needs your support. The very best way to support the work we do is via our membership program, Slate Plus. And with a Slate Plus membership, you can enjoy this and all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. Plus, you'll have access to exclusive bonus content from some of your favorite Slate shows. There's a free trial to be found at slateplus.com slash amicus. And now, back to our conversation with Adam Cohen, author of Imbeciles, The Supreme Court, American Eugenics, and The Sterilization of Carrie Buck. Briefly, just talk about the facts or, or, or what the dispute is in, in Box versus Planned Parenthood. It's it's two uh, abortion uh, restrictions that come out of Indiana uh, under Mike Pence, I should note. Yeah, two provisions. One was about uh, a prohibition on doing discriminatory abortion, so based on gender, race, or disability. And the other was a requirement that fetal remains be given, you know, funerary rights like a child. And the, the court allowed that funerary rights provision to continue, and the other one is not continuing. So um, everyone, you know, as you said, it was deemed to be somewhat mild. Uh, you know, the New York Times called it a compromise. But it does say a lot about where we are in abortion right now, that, that we, it, we we now don't really blink when a state says to a woman, you need to let them give your fetal remains a funeral, just like it was a child. You may have to pay for it because, you know, someone's going to pick up the costs of this, you know, so there might be another thousand dollars I attacked onto your bill. It, it feels like we're going pretty far down the slope. And not 5-4. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, so we leave that <laughs> for another right. day right. because you get invoked on right. this other question of people having selective abortions to maybe get rid of girls. Right, right. So minding my own business, having lunch with a friend, I walk out and I, of course, look at Twitter and um, and there it is, you know, like, you know, someone has tweeted that uh, my book is all over Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion. And it's such a strange concurring opinion, right? There's absolutely no need for it. It's not like this was a case where eugenics was briefed or like the Indiana legislature was talking a lot about eugenics. It just sort of comes, you know, it's like a, a comet coming out of nowhere. Uh, Clarence Thomas is writing 20 pages about uh, the eugenics of, of the situation. And um, it it's also just, it's odd in so many ways, but it's also just an oddly long walk through history for no reason. You know, why is he suddenly talking about Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and what her views were on, on eugenics? And uh, so anyway, it was, there's quite a lot packed in there. And it, yeah, I, I got pulled into this because he does rely on my book a lot and also on this article I wrote for Harvard Magazine. Yeah, again, minding my own business, but an editor contacted me and said, you know, don't you want to respond and, you know, write an article saying, you know, uh, we already have the headline, Clarence Thomas knows nothing of my work. And I did want to write that article because it's true. I mean, he has a lot of facts in there that are historically accurate, but the picture he paints of eugenics and in particular tying it to abortion is just completely inaccurate. And what it is is an attempt to work backwards from wouldn't it be nice if we could now you know, slander abortion as being about eugenics? So let's work back and say that this is what the eugenics movement of the uh, early 20th century was about, but that's not what it was about. And one of the things he does, and I think this a little bit gets missed in the media coverage, is he's not just linking eugenics to abortion, but he's actually linking it to birth control, right? I mean, that's the almost subversive part of this, is that he's tarring the pro-choice movement, but also saying, but all this has its genesis in the birth control movement, which calls into question not just, you know, mothers who are having abortions are, are making decisions based on eugenics principles to do away with their children, but that birth control is somehow adjacent to those questions. That's staggering, too. 
It is staggering, uh, absolutely. Um, it's also a little more complicated because he's actually on somewhat firmer ground there. I wouldn't say firm ground, but there's a little bit more to that because you can say that Margaret Sanger, you know, um, who was the you know, founder of Planned Parenthood, the main advocate for birth control, she was a eugenicist, you know, and she said some terrible things. And um, I was on a panel uh, about a year ago. Uh, it was the 100th anniversary of her arrest in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, and I had been invited in. To, they were all celebrating her great work in Planned Parenthood. I was invited as, you know, the skunk at the garden party to say, oh, by the way, she was a eugenicist. And, you know, when I started looking into it, her book, The Pivot of Civilization, I mean, she says horrible things about how slum, slum mothers, mothers, yeah, are just, you know, the scourge. Of, so the worst thing going on in the world right now is these nurses going in and helping slum mothers because they'll just have more children. So Thomas is a little, on a little bit firmer ground when he says there was some eugenics mixed up in the early birth control movement. Now, defenders of Margaret Sanger say it was really a strategic alliance. She wanted the support of the eugenics movement because her real passion was birth control and her and her uh, reason for that was not mainly eugenic. It was that she wanted women to have more choices. But there's enough uh, bad stuff in Margaret Sanger's past that, um, you know, I, I think we can't completely say that eugenics wasn't part of the birth control movement. We can say that abortion was never involved at all. Abortion was illegal across the country at that time. And some of the leaders of the eugenics movement said expressly, we, we don't think abortion is the answer. We think they were always focused on eugenic sterilization. So, so that's the part I think that you really hammer in your article. This has nothing to do with how they thought about abortion. Uh, why are you using these arguments that, that have some salience in the in the genesis, at least, of the birth control uh, movement. Why are you using it to talk about abortion? And that's the part that's confusing. Why? I'm not, I'm not clear on why that connection gets made. It's a connection he wants to make because he would like to tar abortion with the same brush. And I, I think Thomas had a particular plan in mind by writing this. I think that, you know, we're at a moment in abortion jurisprudence right now, a moment with Kavanaugh there that could go either way. We're on the precipice. There may be five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I know a lot of smart people say, well, they're not going to rush into that. But, you know, sometimes they rush into things. Look at Citizens United, where people are like, wow, you know, this wasn't even briefed in the lower courts. And no one was talking about striking down all limits on corporate spending. They do it all very quickly. And look at how quickly the Voting Rights Act was, was eviscerated. So I think we're at a moment. But I also think that the dilemma for the court is they know that striking down Roe v. Wade would not be very popular. They know know that there's a lot of support for abortion rights. And they also know that the pro-life movement, in quotes, has not really persuaded most of the country that abortion is really about killing a human being. I think that this is Thomas's attempt to get a second argument going. And that second argument is a more PC argument. It's saying, let's think about abortion not only as, you know, quote, stopping a beating heart, but let's think of it as a eugenic movement, a somewhat racist movement. Let's sort of tie it to the ideas of, you know, Nazism and all that. I think this is about branding, about branding abortion abortion in a new negative way. And it's sort of a trial balloon. You know, no, none of the other justices signed his concurrence, but I think they're getting this out there as a way to maybe give some cover if they decide to get radical quickly on abortion. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because Ginsburg responds to this in a, a very terse footnote. I mean, she more or less just flicks at it like it's a gnat, but she's certainly not willing 
In fact, I think to the extent that somebody writes a dissent from his concurrence, it's you uh, writing yeah, in The Atlantic yeah. because nobody wants to engage with him on this. And I think it raises these Overton window questions you're raising, right? I mean, the, again, the last show, we talked a lot with Melissa Murray about how you put these ideas uh, into the ether and suddenly there is, you know, what was uh, for a long time sort of whispered Operation Rescue gossip about how this is a new Holocaust and this is targeting, you know, poor African-American women uh, for to be selected out. Now that's in a concurrence. Right. It's the the work is not to change doctrine. It's to change hearts and minds. I think that's what you're saying. Absolutely right. No. And you're right about the Overton window and the, this whole idea that if you're explaining, you're losing. So if if suddenly the liberals are arguing, well, here are the ways it's not like eugenics. Suddenly you're having a big de- debate about abortion and eugenics. You say in your piece. Good. Let's talk about it. Uh, what's the thing that you want to talk about? I mean, is it to say let's own the really uh, unpleasant and ugly history of eugenics in order to say it has nothing to do with this? I mean, what 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 by smoking all this out and and relitigating something that, as you point out, in many ways uh, makes progressives look really bad, makes progressives look heartless, makes us look like we want to do this kind of eugenic engineering of better races using science and callousness, all of that doesn't necessarily redound to the benefit by relitigating it right now, does it? Right. No, great point. So there, I think there are two reasons it's really great to think about now, and these are kind of the two reasons I, I, I wrote my book. One is I think it's important just to think about how we reach decisions and how the court reaches decisions and have the modesty of thinking about maybe we're getting things wrong, which it would have been nice if they had been thinking in 1927. And uh, you know, I, I had a friend uh, uh, back in college who was writing her uh, uh, senior thesis on, on translation, and the 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 uh, professors told her, you know, when you do that, you really want to find a terrible translation because that's how you can best study translation by looking at ones that get it wrong. So I think with the court too, if you find a decision that they've gotten just monumentally wrong, it, it's a good way to think about how are they reaching their conclusions and what way might we be getting wrong now. So that's sort of the the first part. But the other reason it's really important is we have this idea that these things are all in the past. You know, this was something that occurred in the 1920s. Oh, you know, how long ago? Flappers and Jazz Age. And then we also have a feeling that the Holocaust sort of settled all these issues. We've now learned we won't do it again. But no, I mean, if you look at the news of today, the degree to which eugenic ideas are seeping in, some in a scientific way because of the advances in science, there's a big debate going on right now about designer babies, right? And we have a lot of capacity now to do things that eugenicists couldn't do in the past. Should we do them? What does that mean? Um, so that's one way it's relevant. But the other way it's relevant is in the sort of toxic political times we're in now, the debates over immigration, the rise of race racism and anti-Semitism and all that, we're hearing much more explicitly eugenicist talk. So there was, you know, Congressman King from uh, Iowa who said, you know, we're not going to save our civilization with, you know, other people's babies. There's, you know, Trump talking about how we don't want immigrants from the, quote, shithole countries. We want them from places like Norway. It's coming up in a lot of the border dispute. So it's really, I think, important to dig up this history and say we went through this before, you know, for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons that Clarence Thomas did. Um, I should have asked you this when we were talking about the Indiana statute, but I'll ask it now. Is there a ton of evidence that 
people are choosing to abort babies based on race or gender or the classifications that the Indiana statute invokes? Yeah, you see, that's a great question. And it's really crucial to what Clarence Thomas got wrong. So the first thing he got wrong was just the history. This is not what the eugenics movement was about. But the other thing is he doesn't really understand what eugenics is as a movement. The eugenics movement of the 20th century and eugenics more broadly is about saying the government is going to tell people uh, who can reproduce and who can't reproduce in order to uplift the gene pool. That is the idea. And they had all these categories that people couldn't reproduce. That's a a, a campaign, a, a movement with a goal. That's not what women are doing in Indiana. If you get, you know, if you get a test back and it says that the fetus that you're carrying is going to die in its first year and have a terrible, you know, painful one year of life. When you make that choice about whether or not to continue the the pregnancy, and it is the woman's choice, if she decides not to, she's not thinking about, I really want to do this for the gene pool. The I want the United States gene pool to be stronger or the, you know, the world. No, she's deciding about her life and the life of, you know, uh, of, of, of the fetus as she, you know, as she thinks about it. So this is not eugenics. This is individual women making a choice. Um, and it's wrong to say it's eugenics. I, I think that's so important. A lot of the critiques, I mean, there's been a tremendous amount of criticism of um, Thomas's logic. And I think a lot of them make this point that, that you just made now, but let's say it again, which is this is not about autonomy. Uh, eugenics movement said, you have no autonomy. The state is taking away your autonomy. So in that sense, it's exactly upside down from what it purports to be, which is an autonomy affording thing to say we're going to take away uh, a woman's right to have an abortion because we're worried about eugenics, where in fact, that's what's lost. Her choice is now gone. Exactly. The through line between these two uh, is controlling women. And the eugenics movement wanted to control women and tell them which ones were fit to reproduce. The abortion laws want to control women and tell them that they have to bring a child to term. That That's the connection. As you say, it's the opposite of the connection that Thomas is making. So I want to ask you a question that I'm only going to ask you because you are such an astute uh, uh, watcher of the ebb and flow of, of the legal conversation. And, and I've been really obsessed with the willingness of the justices, particularly this term. But it's been ticking up over the last couple of terms to impute really bad motives to the other side. And we did a podcast recently about, you know, the the ugliness and the rancor and the death penalty conversation at the court right now. And one of the things that is new is a willingness to say all those death penalty lawyers are just hacks and opportunists and everything they say is a lie, right? That's um, how how Sam Alito talks. And I I suppose the analog, you know, for me is, you know, again, the willingness to say every abortion doctor, right? We had that language in Whole Women's Health where every abortion doctor is, you know, uh, Gosnell is somebody who's, who's just bloodthirstily ending life. And I'm wondering if you would see this as of a piece with that, where it's not enough, it seems to me, to have a conversation, a reasoned conversation about, you know, the legacy of Griswold, the legacy of Roe, you know, do we get it wrong in Casey, is the is the tweaking off. But this imputing of extraordinarily bad faith, the, the claim that Thomas is making here is breathtaking at him, right? He's saying that people who want to have abortions just want to get rid of the weak in the herd. And that seems 
different to me. And so I think, in I guess I want to pile it on top of your Overton window observation and say, it's not just saying we're putting this idea in circulation. I mean, this idea has been in circulation for decades in some uh, pro-life conversation, but it's a willingness for the court to put its imprimatur on an idea that the other side is just evil and they're lying about it. Is that me being thin-skinned and hypersensitive or is something new starting to leach into the way the court, even the justices talk to each other about these sort of hot button, moral, religious, whatever issues. It seems different. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think that they're reflecting the culture, sadly. Um, You know, there's the old, you know, chestnut about how the Supreme Court follows the election returns. I think they also now increasingly follow cable news, right? I mean, we are now a culture where people get on TV and shout at each other. And I think we are seeing some of these decisions. You know, one place where this showed up was um, the Affordable Care Act case, where it was such a weird thing. And we now know from, you know, Joan Biskupic and other people's reporting that the chief justice almost voted to strike it down. And then he changed his mind, apparently. And then instead, they struck down the uh, Medicaid expansion, which, you know, was just sort of a little thing to the press. It wasn't covered much, but that was five million people, five million of the very poorest Americans who lost their health care coverage because of how Chief Justice Roberts and the other justices interpreted the spending clause. So when you look at that decision, though, the way they talked about the spending clause, okay, I mean, it it seems like a rather, you know, um, arcane and academic thing. What is the spending clause? Well, Roberts, in his decision, talked about it as a gun to the head of the states, okay? Um, The reason we had to strike down Medicaid expansion is Congress had put a gun to the head of the states and was forcing them to provide health care to these poor people in their state that they really couldn't afford and health care is very expensive. But I looked at that image and I just thought – who brought a gun into this? You know, I mean, you know, Congress, uh, you know, is just doing something that the original Medicaid statute envisioned. It said that everyone said at the time, the Medicaid program will grow over time. Additional groups will be added. They added a, a couple of additional groups. There was no gun involved. There was nothing. But but for Roberts, this was almost an act of robbery. And it seemed like, uh, as you say, really upping the ante. And we're definitely seeing it in the abortion area, right? Because I think we could have a very different conversation where we said, you know, people of goodwill can disagree about abortion. And, you know, I'm someone who is very pro-choice, but I understand there's another way to view it. I mean, I had a close friend when when I was uh, growing up who was very Catholic, and she was anti-death penalty, and she was pro-poor people, and all the way down the line, she just believed a fetus was a, a human thing, and she thought abortion was murder. I don't agree with her. I will always try to stop her from implementing her views, but I don't think she's evil. I mean, there can be differences of, of opinion where you, you recognize that there's a legitimacy uh, to the, the person's, you know, thinking on the other side. That's not where we are now, as you say. I mean, this is a war. It's, you know, you're, you're going to you're trying to turn abortion into Nazi Germany. You're trying to turn the spending clause into uh, a robbery. I think it's very toxic, right? Because, you know, there used to be an attempt on the court to forge these consensuses, right? You think about Brown v. Board of Education. That was a moment where, you know, the country was close to having another civil war about whether we would integrate the schools in the South. And look at how Warren made it a point to get a unanimous decision, right? He thought it was so important that they speak unanimously. And in fact, as the South became integrated, post-Brown v. Board of Education, for many years, every desegregation ruling from the court was unanimous because they thought it was so important uh, that the court speak in a mature and united way about one of the most divisive issues in our time uh, at the time. Now you think they would be having a food fight, you know, and they would be talking in the way Thomas talked in this concurring opinion. I think it's very bad for the court. I think it's very bad for the country. 
So, so as you're talking, it occurs to me you're, you're making two points in there, I think both descriptively correct. One is, you know, what Thomas is doing, as we now said, is assuming, you know, bad faith and ill motives. But the other thing is he's talking about things that don't happen. So, so those two things are, are actually separate and equally toxic because I think it's very much in the key of, you know, what what President Trump says when he says, you know, when the baby is born and they wrap it beautifully and they lay it in a bassinet and then they talk about how to execute it. I mean, there's just no set of facts under which that scenario. I mean, we can have a debate about, you know, whether a six-week ban or an eight-week ban and whether, you know, a beating heart at what point that is happening. But I think that there's something about the court embracing not just the rhetoric of the other side lies, but embracing the rhetoric of this is a thing that happens and you don't know about it. It feels Alex Jonesy to me. I think that's right. We're seeing a lot more magical thinking. We're seeing a lot more made up things. And we're seeing that doctrinally, too. I mean, we alluded to the Voting Rights Act decision um, there that the court struck down, you know, a key part of the Voting Rights Act that was the jewel of the civil rights movement uh, affirmed over and over again by Congress and signed by Republican presidents on some made-up doctrine, right, of equal dignity of the states, which, you know, even Judge Posner wrote an article saying, like, this is not a thing, you know, like, what, where did this come from? So you're seeing them making up doctrine, you're seeing them make up facts, you're seeing them ignore facts. I mean, you know, there was, a, uh, I don't know if you saw, there was a story last week about the former mayor of, of San Antonio wasn't allowed to vote because she didn't bring her voter ID. I think she's 92 years old. And of course, that reminds you of the court's terrible voter ID law, where in this case, it was Justice Stevens writing for the court saying, you know, we just don't think people are really being turned away at the polls. This isn't a problem. Well, it is a problem. Of course, it's a problem. So, yes, I think they're making up facts. They're ignoring facts. They're making up doctrine. Um, it feels very result-oriented. And as you're saying, at the fringe is a little, you know, conspiratorial and weird, right? I mean, the, the, the Thomas concurrence in the abortion case just seemed weird. It, it's funny. It's almost like you're presenting a unified theory of you know, for 200 years, we liked roping the court off from reality. It was important that it hover above the nitty gritty of life. But I think when you rope the court off from reality and then in their earbuds, you pump kind of some of the most pernicious and also untruthful uh, uh, reality. It's funny. It's almost would be better if they were out on the streets looking at voter IDs, because at least I think there's something about this disjunction between uh, life as lived and and uh, their ideas that sounds really good in practice. And it really explodes into something very, very dangerous when there is a pipeline of information that's not true. I don't know if I'm saying something new but it it as you're as you're talking it's occurring to me that that's the difference right it, it wasn't like you, you know the buck v bell court was particularly attuned to reality of you know carrie buck's life as lived they were floating up in the ether but at least they weren't maybe listening to crazy stuff right crazy stuff and also you get more the sense now i think that they're just acting on their prejudices right i mean you get the sense that you know uh, it's almost like someone's watching Fox News and they decide this really moves me to write a Supreme Court decision. And another area where this, I think, is true is you look at the Janus case, right, where, you know, Alito was on this campaign. We must stop public sector unions. But when you actually look at the law, it's like, well, this is crazy. I mean, you know, the First Amendment is not implicated when someone has to pay a little fee to the union that's doing their collective bargaining. That's not First Amendment at, at all. But you just get the sense that they're starting by that, you know, I hate the 
the union movement, you know, and what am I going to do about it? So it just feels, I mean, there's always been charges that the court has politicized, but I don't think it's really been as politicized as this for a very long time where you really just think that they are uh, looking at, you know, they're almost putting together a campaign platform and then just writing decisions to, uh, to, to match their views. I can't let you leave, Adam, without asking you the question that I force everyone to answer often at Knife Point, which is, uh, what will John Roberts do? Um, which is essentially, you've just described uh, a campaign that Clarence Thomas uh, sort of is single-handedly now championing, which is in injecting this conversation that's been, I think, at the fringes of the of the movement, right into the heart of the Supreme Court's dialogue. And we've talked about how nobody chose to engage him. Knowing what you know about John Roberts, and again, uh, mindful of some of the conversations we had in the last show about how he reacts to being jammed on especially these um, big hot-button social issues, will he take the bait? Well, I mean, I think he's a complicated figure, an enigma, some say. Um, you know, he is very, very conservative. And these are views that, you know, I mean, as, as a man in his mid-20s, you know, he was in the Justice Department doing things like arguing against the Voting Rights Act, but also arguing uh, against Plyler v. Doe, arguing that, you know, immigrant children should not be allowed to go to public schools. I mean, he was a man who, at a young age, when people are often very idealistic, had very right-wing views and was really working to put them into effect. So, He's, uh, I think, a real true blue right winger. But does he feel, you know, some pressures from, you know, his role as chief? I think absolutely. I think he doesn't want to go down in history as a disgrace. I think that he's also probably watching and seeing this, you know, incipient rebellion against the court, you know, talking about, you know, uh, uh, limited tenure for justices, talking about packing the court and all that. I think this has an effect. So I think I think he's going to be as bad as he feels he can get away with. But (laughs) I think he definitely would like to end affirmative action today. I think he would like to end abortion today. I think he would uh, like to start dismantling parts of the New Deal today. Um, Will he be cautious about it? Sometimes. But we've also, as I said, uh, on uh, Citizens United, they they pounced Voting Rights Act. They pounced. Uh, they just took away the Medicaid expansion that Congress had passed and the president signed very quickly. Um, I think anything is possible. Uh, so it's interesting. In a sense, we're, we're arriving at exactly the same conclusion about Clarence Thomas this week that we arrived at about Alabama last show, which is they're both efforts to force John Roberts to move faster and much, much more definitively uh, from a movement that really feels we've waited decades to get to five and we're at five and we're not going to lollygag. And it's interesting that it's almost like it's coming from inside the house as well as outside the house. Now it's not just Alabama and Georgia. Now it's it's Clarence Thomas whispering in his ear, it's time and we're, we're all in, right? Someone keeps poking him in the shoulder. Yep, absolutely. And uh, yeah, all eyes are on him now. Adam Cohen is the author of Imbeciles, The Supreme Court, Eugenics, and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck, a book that Clarence Thomas cited last week in a concurring opinion. He was a former member of the New York Times editorial board and is currently a senior writer for Time magazine. He's working on a book now about the last couple of decades at the U.S. Supreme Court. Adam, thank you so very, very much for being with us on the show. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Dahlia. And that is a wrap for this almost the end of term episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in touch, we love your mail. And our email is 
amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcast. Today's show was also helped out by two fantastic new interns, Noah Lykovetsky and Nate Ortner. I couldn't have done the show without them. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks.